Hello, and welcome to the Rockefeller Center's podcast, Rocky Talk. My name is Ben Vogley, and I'm a 22 at Dartmouth. Today, I'm joined by Lucy Hornby, a class of 2020 Neiman Fellow at Harvard and the former Financial Times Deputy Bureau Chief in Beijing. Lucy, thanks for joining us today. Oh, well, thank you, Ben. It's great to have you on. First, could you tell us a bit about your background and what compelled you to report in China? Well, I just thought it was such an interesting place. I went to China in the mid-90s to teach English, and I thought it was a fascinating place to be. And so every time I stayed for another year, it became two years, became five years. Um, and so I worked my way into reporting and really enjoyed that. It was a great way to explore the country. Um, and you've worked in Wuhan. Um, what did you make of the Chinese government's response to the coronavirus crisis there? Well, my first feeling was because I'd been in Wuhan for two winters and it's just chilly and rainy all the time and there's no central heat. So in these concrete apartment buildings, you just feel cold and clammy all the time. So when I heard people were being locked into their apartments, and especially at Chinese New Year, which is a time that most Chinese normally is a very happy time when you visit so many other people, I just felt so sorry for everybody. Um, and I felt like, gosh, you know, it must be just terrible to be under that kind of circumstances. Um, at the time, I have to confess, it didn't really occur to me that this would become a problem for us here in the U.S. or in the rest of the world. Yeah. The United States has been noticeably absent from global efforts to mitigate the coronavirus crisis, while China is asserting itself more than ever. Is the disparity in global leadership that we are seeing between the United States and China a turning point in the U.S.-China rivalry? Well, I think it certainly is doing China a lot of good. Um, the uh, you know a lot of it is uh, perception and propaganda, which China is extremely adept at, um, but they're welding it very effectively right now. Uh, sorry, wielding it very effectively right now. Um, and a lot of countries who find themselves kind of overwhelmed trying to figure out what to do about this virus. You know, they're not going to sit around and uh, dissect your motives. They're just going to take the supply from whoever gives it to you. Um, so I do think it's a big um, opportunity for China to increase its global influence. Um, it's also a uh, opportunity for them in a negative sense that they can also misstep and um, increase the sense of resentment against China because up till now, you know, most of the world has a pretty positive impression of China. Uh, so there's potential for misstep, but overall, I would say it's a real opportunity for China to expand its global presence. Um, and China is, you know, really aggressively promoting itself as a hero in the fight against the coronavirus and also airbrushing many of its initial missteps. Are countries and also people buying this narrative? Uh, yeah, I think that's a very good description of what they're doing. And, I, you know, I think people's memories are short. You know, not everybody was paying a whole lot of attention back in January when China was fumbling badly. Uh, and so once they did start paying attention, um, you know, once the virus hit their shores and they were struggling with it, they turn around and they see a very confident, apparently successful China. And I think that's what makes the impression. So both the U.S. and China appear determined to scapegoat one another as this crisis continues. Um, how will bilateral ties between China and the U.S. be different in a post-coronavirus world? Well, I think it certainly doesn't help when you have a lot of personal rancor added in. Um, you know, there's a lot of structural reasons for the U.S. and China to be rivals. And I think that the, you know, the Obama administration tried to kind of smooth that rivalry. Uh, the Trump administration has decided to confront it head on. 
Mm-hmm. Um, there are two different approaches. Probably each has its advantages and disadvantages. But up till now, you haven't had that level of personal rancor being chucked into the mix. And I can't see that it would be particularly helpful. Yeah. How will the coronavirus impact Chinese overseas investments like its Belt and Road Initiative, for example? So the Belt and Road Initiative, um, for those who don't know, is this program to build uh, infrastructure throughout the world. Uh, And it's very driven by the need of Chinese state-owned enterprises to um, have new contracts and new business um, because China itself has um, reached a level of development where they don't need as much investment at home. Um, The other thing that people should understand before I answer the question is that for the most part, it's the host country that's paying for this. Uh, China provides the financing, China provides the work and the material, but for the most part, um, the ultimate payer is the home government. And so the premise of all these investments is that once you make the investment, then you'll have a larger economy and you'll be able to pay it off. Uh, Right now, we're looking at a global downturn of extreme proportions. And a lot of those countries were struggling to pay off very large white elephant projects to begin with. And if they are suffering from a global downturn, it's hard to imagine that they would be in any much of a better state to do so. And what will China do about that debt and these developing countries' inability to pay it? Yeah, so that's a huge question. Um, Up till now, China has taken the tact of renegotiating the debt. So, you know, they don't take the U.S. very litigious um, way of trying to claw back the amount, nor do they sell it to, uh, you know, um, debt collectors in any way. What they try to do is renegotiate that debt. And usually those renegotiations involve longer term, maybe more assets in the home country being thrown in, and they leave the home country uh, much more exposed to China usually. That's a bit alarming. How's that going to affect everyone's perception of China? Well, I think that's one of the risks um, because, like I said, you know, for the most part, this China story has been a very cheerful one for the last 20, 25 years of a country that has succeeded in developing and succeeded in raising its own citizens' standard of living. Um, and other countries find a lot to envy in that. But, uh, you know, it's a very different story when suddenly you're the one, you're the bad boy with all the cudgels about debt or when, you know, countries start to have difficult conversations about, do we pay off China's debt or do we expand our hospital system? And so I think the the possibility of China running into more resentment internationally uh, only increases as its footprint grows. Yeah. And you've covered this when you were working in China, but China has some of the highest levels of corporate debt in the world. With the global economy faltering, is this going to prove problematic? I think it's a huge challenge. Um, But you have to understand that the Chinese economy hasn't been doing that terrifically for the past couple of years uh, anyway. Um, And so you've already had, uh, especially the private sector, has been under a great deal of strain. And many of the smaller private businesses folded um, in 2014, 2015, and 2016. Um, This downturn wasn't really understood very much outside of China, uh, partly because the Chinese official statistics um, were still very rosy. Uh, But Mm -hmm. internally, they've already gone through a period of great stress that wiped out um, a lot of the private sector. And this coming um, recession, I think, will prove to be an even greater strain on the companies that remain. 
In response to this, what kind of policy changes do you see the Chinese central government making? Well, they've tried to increase financing to the private sector. Um, it hasn't worked as well as they hoped, partly because of the way the system is set up. Um, but you know, they think they're very aware of the problems and they're very interested in staying in power. So they try to be flexible about their solutions. I think at the end of the day, the, the trend though in China um, always comes back to uh, supporting those really large uh, companies that China believes are essential for its uh, national system. And yeah. they'll be, I think, in the end of the day, they'll, they'll try to um, protect those and let the chips fall where they may for everyone else. Alarming. So recently, in response to a move by the Trump administration to limit the number of Chinese journalists who can work in the United States, China expelled American journalists working for the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, and the Washington Post. How is this going to change our coverage of China? Well, look, I just think this is a huge tragedy and a huge mistake. Um, it's been terrible for my colleagues who are in China, who've devoted their careers and a lot of their lives to China uh, to be kicked out unceremoniously. Um, but I also think that it's really damaging for both the U.S. and China. Uh, for the U.S., um, they have just cut off their uh, one of their main channels of insight into what's going on in China. Uh, so mm. they made the choice to blind themselves um, and in picking fights over the Chinese state media presence here in the U.S., which frankly they weren't doing much. So you know, I don't know why why you wanted to pick that fight. Um, but anyway, so the U.S. has willingly blinded itself. Uh, and for China, I also think it's a big loss. You know, China thinks that foreign journalists, you kick them out because they're just out to get us anyway. And I think that they fail to realize the degree to which foreign media coverage of China, because it is credible, and because foreign journalists are so sympathetic generally to the Chinese that they know, um, foreign media uh, coverage actually is part of China's soft power and helps give a positive impression and uh, sympathy for China worldwide. So without that, you know, the Chinese public propaganda is kind of shrill, uh, lacks credibility. Um, and so I think they'll find that they lost one of their best channels um, for soft power. So both sides ended up hurting themselves, in my opinion. Um, but of course, the biggest immediate pain is felt by these very dedicated journalists. Out of curiosity, do you plan to return to China once you're finished with your Neiman Fellowship? Uh, not for the moment, um, but I do hope to someday. I mean, I've really had many, many good years there. I've got many good friends there. I love to see how the country is changing, learn more about it. Yeah. Um, so I do hope to go back, but I wouldn't be going back immediately. There's been a lot of talk about a Cold War with the West being pitted against a rising China. And I'm wondering if you think that this is a valid narrative and what you think, you know, such a situation could look like. So I think it's very valid in the sense that, you know, we have been the dominant superpower since the Soviet Union fell. Um, we've overreached in many respects. And now there's a new country coming up that is, you know, strong and wants to have more say both in its own neighborhood uh, and globally. So I think it's sort of structurally um, structurally uh, necessary or, or, you know, structurally inevitable, if you will, that that kind of friction will result. The question is how far that friction will go. And obviously, I think most people don't want to see uh, any sort of... Um, 
violent clash between the two countries. Um, but you also, so then they fall back on the analogy of the Cold War. And the trouble with that analogy is that the U.S. and the Soviet Union had very few economic ties between each other um, during the Cold War, whereas China is very mm. much entwined in the heart of the global supply chains and also at the heart of the global capital networks. Um, so it's really hard to kind of imagine what a uh, disassociation would look like. And I think one possibility is you would end up with two kind of parallel systems, if you will, both in supply chains, but also in tech, on the internet, um, yeah. you know, possibly even sub- parallel spheres of influence people talk about in Asia. Um, but, you know, the U.S., we know what we don't want, but we don't have a good vision for what we do want. And as a final question, do you have any advice for young people that are hoping to positively impact these U.S.-China-related issues? Well, I think that, you know, when you're young, it can be kind of discouraging, right? You look out there and everything seems so set in place. Um, But there's also, you know, young people are much more conversant with new technology, and they're also much more um, able to just embrace a new idea, right? Because... They, they're more able to look at the world as they find it because you don't have kind of decades of lived experience between yourself and the current reality. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think, I don't know. I mean, in my case, I got on a plane and I went off to China and I certainly did not intend to stay there for 25 years. <laughs> um, but, you know, I think kind of go for it, right? Don't don't be so obsessed with climbing the, the ladder of whatever the structure's that are there now, you know, go for what seems good to you and times will change around you. All right. Well, thanks again, Lucy. And to our listeners, thanks for tuning in. Until next time. This podcast is a production of the Nelson A. Rockefeller Center for Public Policy and the Social Sciences. The views expressed in this podcast are those of the speakers and not of the Rockefeller Center. This episode was produced and edited by Laura Howard. We hope you will join us for our next episode. And if you want more information, you can find us at rockefeller.dartmouth.edu.